Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the whole Suzuki thing is that it really is all about child development and music is just the tool that we use to work with each kid. And, you know, I, I mean, there's all these different components about it as well, but it's really this sort of set of self-regulation tools and emotional learning, really. Um, and so, yeah, it's a whole big picture, but music is like the glue that kind of holds it together. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we have an episode about music. That voice you heard in the intro is Heather Watson Hardy, and she is the founder of the Greenwich Suzuki Academy, which happens to be where my kids take instrument lessons. Heather is a Suzuki teacher. Her school uses the Suzuki method. This is a method that I heard about many years ago when my son started Montessori school. From what Heather tells me, Dr. Montessori and Dr. Suzuki had ideologies that were complementary. I would not consider myself a musical person by any means. I did not grow up musical or in a musical family. But I will say from the very first lesson that my son had with Heather's husband, Nick, something was very apparent. Not only do these people know music, but they also know child development. And it's very rare to find people that are both good at their craft and good with kids. I was pretty sure that maybe this was an outlier teacher, like one really amazing teacher. But then my daughter started and we had the same experience with her teacher. A beautiful combination of music and child development. Part of the method involves the kids playing individually with the teacher once a week and also as a group once a week. And aside from the instructors being well-trained, what sets this apart in my eyes is putting kids together in musical conversation, if you will. It's incredible. So I invited Heather to talk with us today to share a little bit more about her journey. I was especially interested to learn about how music impacted her life from the beginning until present day, what it was like to grow up as a musical kid in a musical family, to make a career out of it, and now being a parent to two kids who are quite musical. And also many of you submitted music-related questions for Heather to answer. So in the second half of the episode, she's going to do that for us. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy my chat with Heather. Hi, Heather. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for chatting with me today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Is this your first podcast interview? It is. Well, I'm happy to have you here. I invited you because I feel like you have so much to share. And I mean, I'll share first how I met you. Um, so I enrolled my kids in your music school. It's been about a year and a half and my son works with your husband and my daughter works with another teacher in your school. And 
I think the thing I was surprised by at the very beginning was how well you all balance musical training and child development, which I think is not an easy thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, the whole Suzuki thing is that it really is all about child development and music is just the tool that we use to work with each kid. And, you know, I I mean, there's all these different components about it as well, but it's really this sort of set of self-regulation tools and emotional learning, really. Um, And so, yeah, it's a whole big picture, but music is like the glue that kind of holds it together. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that people are really skeptical about with Suzuki is that kids are often very young when they start. And you were very young when you started. Well, I was so, so young. I wasn't that young. So I did not grow up Suzuki at all. And my husband did. So my husband was, um, I think, a little before he was three. And I, um, yeah, I, my, my parents were, didn't, didn't really understand Suzuki and they were sort of anti-Suzuki, or at least my mom okay. was. And, um, I, my parents had a lot of rules. And so I'm one of four, I'm the third of four girls and we're all within five and a half years together. So basically like the same age, but I was the third and I, my parents said that everyone had to study piano first and then you'll well, wait, were your parents musicians? They were. I mean, they met in music school. They went to um, SMU together. And um, my dad had a degree in in music. And so my mom, they got they got married at 20. <laughs> um, it was the 70s. And <laughs> then they uh, got my mom got pregnant four months after getting married. So she played the cello and my dad was oboe, but he also played piano. And then my dad actually uh, got into the uh, Marine Corps band in DC. And then my mom got pregnant again. And then he decided to become an officer, which is a really, I think as far as we know, he's still the only musician to do this. And so then he really had a career in the military. So we moved a bunch, a bunch of times. Um, He sold his instrument for uniforms and he really cared about music. And my mom finished her degree by correspondence. Um, and then she was really staying at home. He did tours of duty in other countries, but music was super important. And it was, you know, my mom was sort of a stage parent because I think she had these dreams for herself to be a musician. And she was also raised very Southern. So she was also really believed in this idea that no, she should be a wife and a mother, but she was also very ambitious. The rule was that everyone had to do piano for several years and then you could choose your real instrument. Um, So I hated piano. (laughs) (laughs) So how old were you when you started piano? Six or seven, something like that. Um, And I still remember this sweet little piano teacher. And, um, and I was very obedient because again, I had kind of, you know, that was the childhood I had, but I was, you were Southern. Um, I was Southern. Yeah. <laughs> and I had, you know, my dad ended up right. being a you know, Marine Colonel and, right. you know, but I, um, but I would go to these piano lessons and I would just sit there and I would say, I'm sorry, but I don't want to play piano. I want to play cello. And I would not do a thing. And every lesson she would still give me a lemon drop. Like I remember she would give me candy <laughs> At the end? Yeah, I would do I would play nothing. Oh, you really wouldn't play anything. You no, said you I wouldn't would. and you really wouldn't do it. Yeah. I don't so what did your parents think? Because I'm all in my head like I would be losing it if my kid was just sitting there not playing. Did they know you were not yeah. playing? 
Well, they weren't in the lesson, so they didn't necessarily okay. know much. And um, my dad, for some reason, was adamant because I was begging to play cello. Because, and I heard it all the time, right? My mom yeah. played cello. And, um, and he said to me, you only want to play cello because your mom plays cello. And I remember being like, well, now I'm a grown-up, and I'm like, but is that a ta- bad thing? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of natural, right? She yeah, looks like she's yeah. having fun, you know. <laughs> uh, so eventually the piano teacher um, went to my parents and said, you know, I don't think this is working out. I think she really wants to play cello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they let me. Um, and so then I started at eight, so which, which, is, which is a fine age. But in Suzuki world, it's not necessarily super young. And Nick's childhood on cello was a little different because his parents, you know, his mom had grown up as the movement was really developing in this country. And she was with some of the Suzuki pioneers at the time. And um, she also had musician parents and her her parents were also music professors. And Nick's dad's a cellist and Nick's mom is a violist violinist. And she kind of plunked him on cello before three and off you go. Wow. Well, so I guess thinking, I guess I'm interrupting your story, but just to clarify for anyone listening that thinks that is crazy to start a kid on an instrument at three, I think I, prior to knowing anything about Suzuki or meeting you all, I would have thought that anyone that has a two-year-old playing an instrument is trying to raise a prodigy. Yes. One of these, one of these like YouTube sensations. So can you, for anyone thinking that, is that? That's really not at all the Suzuki philosophy. Now, the problem is because the Suzuki method is so successful as a music method, you definitely will get parents that do it for those reasons. And, or you'll get parents that do it because they want their kid to get into an Ivy league. And we're also going to, you know, tutor this and take this and take a million things. And, and none of that is actually really what the purpose is. I mean, there, there are Everything with Suzuki has sort of a musical or a cognitive goal, but it also has this social emotional goal and they sort of work hand in hand. And one of the reasons you start really young is music is learned similarly to a language in our brain. And so when you start young, it's the same thing as Um, being exposed to a language when you're young, it's easier for their brain. And the more you listen, the more that you, your brain makes a map of it, the easier it is. But the big overall goal was that the Suzuki method is a worldwide peace movement. And when you take really little kids um, the idea is that you mix them with all different kinds of kids, kids that look different, that think different, that, learn different, that have different beliefs, and you're exposing them to each other. And when you make music with other people, you are developing empathy. And it's the same sort of feeling that every, you know, parent has felt with a little baby when you're naturally tapping them, you know, to get them in beat. And what you're doing is you're getting your brain in sync, right? And that develops bonding and empathy and care. And there's a lot of research on that. And a lot of it comes from the McMaster's Institute with um, Dr. Laurel Trainer. And, and so when we take the really little ones, it's because it's about exposure and it's about exposure to the music for the learning, but it's about exposure to others too. And the more you do it, the easier it is. Yeah. Okay. So I got sidetracked back to the story. You're eight years old and where are your siblings at at this point? Are they still playing the piano or did they diverge also? 
<laughs> well, they all did. So my my oldest sister um, had some learning issues, but in the 70s, it was less, you know, it was more like, oh, it's your fault, right? So she sort of struggled in different various forms. And my next sister is a high achiever, but she started on piano and then kind of ended up on flute. Um, and then, yeah, I went to, I went to cello and I really did. I'm the one that did the least amount of piano for sure. And then my youngest sister, who's 15 months younger than me was probably the best practicer, Mm. (laughs) but also she's the baby in a large family. So she had a lot to prove. Right. And so she did piano and then violin and then flute. And then she is also a musician. Um, and she's a, uh, an amazing flute player, an amazing teacher, and also a mom of three. Oh. So were any of you more naturally talented at music? And is that even a thing? It's not really a thing. Now, there are physical things that you can be born with that make certain instruments easier. So for instance, the cello is not a small instrument. Um, and if you are a teeny tiny human, there are things you're going to have to do to get around it. Now, my best friend in the world is a teeny tiny human, and she's also an amazing cellist. Um, So it's not like if you're tiny, you can't do something. It just means that you have to figure out different ways of doing things. Um, And my husband, who is enormous, obviously, you've met him, very (laughs) tall human. He has to play the cello a little differently because he's so big that his arms and legs have to sort of adjust. Um, But this idea that you know, talent. Like there was that movie, I think it was August Rush or something. I don't know, the movie about how this kid is born and just can play and isn't it amazing. That (laughs) is total um, not reality. Now, the reason a lot of musicians' kids go into music is because they've been exposed. They've been around someone who is like, oh, listen to this. It's amazing, right? And it's the same reason why you have lawyers that have lawyer kids and you have, you know, it's it's because they've just been exposed. Um, and it's prioritized, right? Like in your yeah. family, it's very much prioritized. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember when I first got into Suzuki teaching, I was, of course, a zealot because it was like everything I'd never had as a kid. And, um, and I remember one of my older sisters was like, wait, you force kids to do this? And I was like, no, it's not forcing. It's it's getting them so excited that they can't help but want to do it. It's totally different. And it's harder. It's Intrinsic motivation is way harder than forcing, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's way more interesting because then it's about getting to know your kid and well, what does motivate them right now? And it'll change too. You know, you figure out it and then they grow a little and then, you know, you have to come up with another game. But yeah, yeah, no, my childhood was very intense with music. Whereas Nick's, who had two musician parents who were making their living as musicians, was very different, very well-rounded. There was never like, you should be a musician, maybe even the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you should not be a musician. Right. Um, and my family was, you know, my my mom really wanted me to be like, you know, a famous cellist, but if I couldn't be a famous cellist, maybe I could play in a symphony, but you know, the whole, all I would do would be performing. And the funny thing is is that I, I was one of those weirdos that kind of said, this is what I want to do. And my whole life I had said, I want to be a cello teacher. It's just kind of weird because I don't think that very many people actually end up becoming what they say they want to become when they're eight. 
But yeah. wait, so as soon as you started playing, you knew that you wanted to teach. I I really I had been saying it like my whole life. Yeah, I was like, I want to be a cello teacher, a cello teacher. Um, and then my mom would say, No, 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 no. You want to be a performer, and ah. you know. And I would she would like you know sign me up for competitions before I met age requirements. Um, and I still don't really understand how that happened. But then, you know, I could skip school whenever I wanted to practice all day long. Wow. Um, did that ever happen? Did you actually practice yes. all day long? Well, I think that in high school, I did nine hours like, sometimes. Wow. Um, That's amazing. I don't know it was really good practice, to be right. fair. Like, I think it was, you know, I was like just playing through pieces and exhausting myself. I didn't really understand how to work or how to work effectively. But um, I did put in time for sure. Yeah. So you uh, th- you played all through elementary school, middle school, high school, and th- did you play in your school band or where did what did that look like throughout those years? Yeah, I would play my we moved all the time. I went to um 12 different schools before I graduated wow. high school. And so my mom was my big consistency for for learning for a lot of that, but she would always try to scout out the best teachers in the area, especially after I got to be like 12 or something, because it's hard to learn with a parent. It is. Yeah. I, <laughs> we'll get to that, right? <laughs> yeah. Even, yeah. Even with my kids. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> so she would try to find teachers. And one of the best teachers, we lived for quite a while outside of DC when I was fifth through eighth grade. And then I had a great teacher who really gave me a foundation and his name was Lauren Stevenson. And that really helped me for a long time. And then after that, I, I would, but I would play in whatever youth orchestra there was. My mom would sign me up for everything, everything possible. Um, and I do remember I did, I was really into ballet for a little while. I really liked it a lot. I really liked to dance. And then I remember in the fifth grade in the room I shared with my sister, we were playing Barbies and my mom comes in and I think I had had dance that day. And she goes, just so you know, you have just quit ballet. And I I was like, huh? And she goes, first of all, you're not going to be a famous ballerina. And um, if you, even if you are, your career will be over by the time you're 20. And it's taking away too much time for cello. So you just quit. <laughs> wow. But, you know, and then I'll just contrast that with my husband's childhood, who, by the way, both of his parents have doctorates. They all did their best. It's just really different, you know, but my, my mother-in-law, both of her parents were professors as well. So very educated. They got married much older. Nick always did sports and his sister always did other activities. It was all about being well-rounded. It was all about, this is, we do music because it's good for your brain. It's good for your soul. It's good for, you know, this is important to us. Um, But they always said, you know, when you're 18, if you want to never play an instrument again, that's on you. We will force you to brush your teeth until you're 18. And then (laughs) if you want rotten teeth, that is your call. Yeah. And mine was different. I mean, mine was just definitely more intense. So did you become a famous cellist? No. <laughs> what, is, what does that even mean? I like other than Yo-Yo Ma, like I really don't know like very many, like what, like I guess professional, like paid in an orchestra or 
I don't know. Well, like, I've played, in, I've played in different orchestras, but okay. not like full-time orchestras, but I've played in different orchestras. Um, I, my, my undergrad degree is in cello performance. Um, my master's is in cello performance and Suzuki pedagogy. Like, you know, I think in her dream is that one of her children would be someone who just makes their money performing. Um, and my sister, my younger sister, who's a musician also got quite a lot of, um, pressure on that front too, maybe even more so than me, because she was winning a lot of competitions Mm -hmm. young and she was recruited for colleges even when she was in middle school, which really upset me because I was in high school and (laughs) yeah, but, um, you know, I, I do, it's funny because as much as I love to play the cello and I do think that listening to people perform music is important and it's transformative and it's eye opening. It always felt more, um, I don't know if this is a terrible word, but it felt more selfish to me, which, and I love to make music. I love to do that. And I think it's not to, I think transporting audiences is important, but the teaching component, which is about relationships and to watch the kids grow up and to see the parents and their relationships develop. I mean, it's, to me, it's so much more, it's deeper and, you know, longer lasting, but, you know, I mean, there's performances that change people's life. Like you can read a book and it can change your life and you can see a piece of art and it can make you think of things that you'd never thought of. And so I'm not trying to downplay performing. It's just that I, um, I had so much pressure that auditions were nightmares for me. And I was never good enough either too, just to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) So after doing your your bachelor's in cello education, did you start teaching? Or writing? cello performance. Cello performance. It doesn't really matter. Got it. Yeah. And then your master's was cello performance with education. Suzuki Sorry, pedagogy. Suzu- with Suzuki pedagogy. Okay. So when yeah. did you find Suzuki and tell us how that changed your perspective on education, music education? Yeah. Well, so I went to um, Baylor for undergrad, which is where Nick's dad was the cello professor for the longest time and the head of the string department. And I went there because I got a full ride and my parents had just gone through a messy divorce and were in Texas and I um, didn't want to be too far. And my parents had all along said, you know, if you can get yourselves to college, great. We have nothing for you. And they didn't. (laughs) So I um, was like, oh, I'll take that money and go. And, uh, and I, the first day of the auditions, um, you usually like, especially in Texas, which is a really like music intensive, um, environment, there's all these competitions and you kind of meet all these people that you're competing with. And the first day for freshman year, Nick was there, these group of cellists getting ready to audition for chairs in the orchestra. And I knew everybody. I'd competed with a lot of these people. They knew me. Um, And at this time, I didn't have a growth mindset. I didn't have, you know, I needed many more years of therapy to become a better person. So immediately I was like, oh, I have to beat you. I hate you. Right. (laughs) So, um, and I didn't know this guy who was, you know, kind of handsome, kind of tall, but I was like, who are you? How do I not know you? And, um, and then I I made some comment about my mom being a cellist and he was like, well, my dad's a cellist, like very casually. And my mom was a, um, a public school orchestra teacher at the time. She'd been stay at home until kids got big enough. And then she was a, a public school teacher and which is awesome, but it's different than my dad's the head of the string department at a university, right? That's like a different level of cellist. And, um, 
And then he said very casually, well, you know, he's like on faculty here. <laughs> and I was like, wait, huh? <laughs> and then it took another beat. And then everyone else under knew that he was Dr. Gary Hardy's son. And I was like, wait, Dr. Hardy is your dad? And he was like, yeah, you know. And I was like, oh. So, and then it turns out he wasn't even a music major. Because again, his parents were like, whatever you want, yeah. you know, it's your life, yeah. be a be and you're human. He was an engineering major. Um, and so then I was like, well, he's probably a terrible cellist. I'm better than him, I'm sure, <laughs> right? Because I have to be. Right. And um, so then he would take my music major classes for fun, which was very annoying to Not me. Not even for credit. Well, they were like extra credit, you okay. know, like your elective hours right. and stuff. And um, and there's this, when you're a music major, there's this class that's like oral skills or oral training, but it's all about hearing things. And so they'll play something on the piano and you have to write it down. And they give you like three plays and you have to write it down. And as a, as a non-Suzuki, one of the big Suzuki ways that we do it is that you train the ear, you train the ear. And, um, but if you're learning just immediately while you're reading and playing, you don't train your ear the same way at all. So I was like in a panic and I had like, you know, I still have a little bit of an achievement addiction where I'm like, if I don't have an A, am I okay? I'm not okay. Yeah. How do I get extra credit? Please love me. Right. You know, so I, um, it was so hard for me and they would play it and Nick would write it down after one listening and then sit back like he was bored. And I would look at that guy and I'd be like, I hate you. Like I hate you with every fiber of my being. And why are you in this class? Um, <laughs> right. And then, um, I don't know, it went from hate to dating <laughs> <laughs> quickly or over the course of years, over a little time, okay. over a little time. Yeah. We started off as friends and then people started to ask me to like hook him up with them. And I was like, Oh, he's not interested. Only years later when we were married, I was like, oh yeah, you know, just like, oh, I talked to him. He doesn't, he doesn't want to, he's not interested. All right. <laughs> and then he invited me to one of his, uh, his, his mom ran this huge Suzuki program in Texas. And all my life I had heard Suzuki kids are robots. They don't learn to read. They're, um, you know, it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing. So of course, cause it was my mom saying that I was like, oh, well, Suzuki kids are robots. Well, then I heard Nick play and he's like super musical. And I was like, oh, well, Suzuki kids can't read. And then of course, Nick could sight read everything like amazingly. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> where's my, where's what? So I went to um, a huge concert. It was a December concert. And I saw all of these kids like joyfully playing and I was just like, what is this? So then I read, you know, Nurtured by Love and I read all, I started to get into Suzuki philosophy and, you know, it's like that person that finds religion later and you become a total zealot. And it was everything I'd ever craved for as a kid. So I was like a baby in training classes. Yeah. So then did you start your Suzuki school right after? No. So I did, I did, my mother-in-law hired me to teach for her program during undergrad, which was great because I didn't have other ways of making money. And then I um, took a little time off between undergrad and grad school and then just taught a bunch um, and taught other places in Texas too. And then I, then I, I decided I wanted to go to grad school and I wanted to, I kind of wanted to go to New York and 
So I took some auditions and then I um, wound up in New York and again, you know, just was on my own. So I did have scholarship, but I was also looking for teaching at the time. And I remember, you know, there's this funny feeling of things in New York where if you get hired by a good school, the idea is that, well, you are so lucky to be teaching here that we don't have to pay you a living wage. (laughs) And I was being paid the exact same hourly rate that I had been in Texas, but the cost of living was at least double. And it was so shocking to me, but the tuition that the families were paying was, was huge, you know? And of course, you know, as now that I own and run a school, there's a lot of expenses and all of that, but it still was not, you know, there's extra money going somewhere. Right. right? (laughs) And, um, and the other thing too, is that I had had this like amazing community that my mother-in-law had developed that was so supportive and so non-competitive. And I, you know, New York is different. There's so many people. It's, it, you know, there's a lot, there's less of this sort of caretaking of individuals. And I miss that. So at the time, Nick and I were still um, dating. We had dated for forever. <laughs> well, nine years, and then we got married. But we were long distance because he was, he was really going the performance route. He did, after three years of engineering, he switched to music. He was going back to school to get his doctorate. And, you know, we were, the idea was that, of course, he would be like a third generation professor. And I would just kind of scoot along. So in the meantime, I'd finished my degree. and. Um, someone that I was doing the training course at the, the Suzuki pedagogy was at a place called school for strings, which is a, a big training ground for teachers. And someone in that course said, would you like to teach in the public schools in Greenwich? And I said, no, I never want to be a public school teacher. I know all about that. I had been my mom's like recruiting tool all my life. You know, like I, I was very familiar and I was like, that's not my jam. But then she was like, it'll pay you $10,000 for one day of work. And I was like, that is my jam. I will do that. <laughs> and so I started in the last year of my master's, I started coming one day a week. And then as soon as I finished, they hired me kind of like for full time in the public schools. And at the time I was noticing that there was no music school there. And I was just really curious if a school that was sort of like my mom, my mother-in-law's program, which had built, built off this other program, the Prusel school, which um, is a really kind of famous musical family. I was like, you know, I wonder if it could be done differently, if it would work or not. And, um, and if a school was built around the teachers, like, you know, you pay the teachers as much as you possibly can. You try to find the best teachers that you can. You, you cultivate, you make them really happy, cultivate them as much as possible. You know, would that even work? Before I started the school, you know, I had people telling me like, it would never work in Greenwich. You're never going to get parents to do all that, like to come to a lesson and to learn with their kids and to be, you know, it's a really humble, vulnerable thing to be a Suzuki parent. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of it is just like, well, my idea just failed. <laughs> we need to come up with a different idea. And, you know, and they're like, this is not the kind of culture of parents. But at the time I was like, well, it doesn't matter. This is a learning experiment. I'm going to, you know, give it up anyway, cause Nick's going to get his professorship and we're just going to move. And, you know, it's not yeah. going to, this is, doesn't matter. So I started the school on all of these ideals, like, let's just see what happens. And shockingly, it kind of worked. So, so then Nick finished his doctorate and then um, 
we were just looking at, you know, like what was coming in and how much you make as a young professor, which is very little. And <laughs> so then we decided to just run it together. And that's what we've been doing. And he does a lot of performing still too. So he's yeah. principal cellist at the Bridgefield Symphony. He's principal cellist at Bridgeport. Um, and I have not done performing since I had kids. So that's mm. 12 years ago. Yeah. We're going to pause for a two minute word from today's sponsors. The first sponsor is Earth Breeze. Your detergent, those awkward, heavy jugs filled with messy goo. They're really about 90% water. And most of them don't get recycled. That's right, there's an estimated 700 million detergent jugs in our landfill every year. But of course, we can't just stop doing laundry, but we do have a choice when it comes to choosing our detergent. Earth Breeze is unlike anything I've ever tried. It actually looks like dryer sheets, but it's not. They dissolve 100% in any wash cycle, hot or cold. I have loved it. I was previously using these little pods and the pods never melted properly. So I had to use my fingernails to open them up and spread it out over the washing machine. And even though it wasn't liquid, it was still a hassle. So not only does Earth Breeze allow you to do good, but it also makes laundry easier. Now it's time to try Earth Breeze because right now my listeners can subscribe and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com simple to get started. That's earthbreeze.com simple for 40% off earthbreeze.com slash simple. Our second sponsor for today is Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. You don't have to spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. You can do it all with Indeed. Indeed's US data shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor the job. Something I love about Indeed is it's simple. Everything's in one place. They have features like instant match, which means as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality. Visit indeed.com slash families to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash families. Indeed.com slash families. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing is not available for everyone. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Thanks so much for supporting our sponsors. Back to my chat with Heather. So let's talk about having kids. And yes. did you have a lot of idealizations as far as your kids starting to play and what that oh, would be like? Oh, 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, because like, you know, Suzuki was like my therapy for my childhood. So when oh. my oldest son was born... Um, of, I was like, well, this will be like how I heal all of that in me. And my mom had passed away already. And, you know, I just, I was like, well, I will do everything that I always wanted. And it took me a really, it was like nine months of failing with my oldest, um, before I had to be really humble. Yeah, I, I still remember the day, actually. I, I, so in the Suzuki world, you have often what's called a practice parent, and that's the parent that goes to the lessons and learns and practices regularly with the kiddo. You know, um, I had always remembered that my mother-in-law and father-in-law, they had split up their kids. So my father-in-law had worked with, um, with Alyssa, and my mother-in-law had worked with Nick. And my mother-in-law had said, you know, I could, I could really see the way they grew up is that they problem solve and think in the ways that we do, do, 
you know, that she had said it was so bonding and it's this, you know, amazing journey. And I was like, well, I want that. Like I was kind of selfish. And at the time I had one and I was really struggling with infertility and frequent, um, uh, losses. And so I didn't know if we were just going to be able to have one or if we were going to have more than one. And so I was like, well, you know, if we're going to have one, he should play cello and, you know, I should be the practice parent. And Nick was like, I don't think he should play cello. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, I feel like that's too much pressure. How old was he at the time when you had this conversation? Two, but close to three. Okay. Two, close to three. So both my kids were born in October and this would have been the summer before. And, um, And I was, you know, I was kind of a nut because I was really dealing with my own, you know, stuff, fertility stuff. And so then he, he was like, fine, fine. We can play cello. So that whole year I was, you know, I had all these dreams about the ways that I wished someone had taught with me that it would be fun and we would play games and, and, um, so yeah, then I went back to the day that I realized that it was, that I was being, it was all about me. And the whole point was that it was supposed to be all about him, not about me. And that was just like my mom doing it to me, right? Like it was all about her. And I was just, anyway, so I saw, I heard, um, I heard Nick practice with him and I was kind of removed just where I could kind of hear, but they couldn't see me. And the practice was so good. And I actually had to go upstairs and cry because I felt like such a failure. And I felt, I knew that Nick needed to practice with him for it to be successful. And it was really hard for me. And so, but it was the right call. And I think that's one of the whole, like Suzuki or parenting things is that sometimes the right call for our kid is not the one that we want. Yeah. <laughs> it's And it's not the easy one. And, but it's still the the better one. And so that's, so then Nick, you know, and then, and then I learned too, that what I needed as much as I love creativity, that my son needed it to be more structured and less evolving, less global and expansive. Um, and then we learned more about his brain in the process and yeah. Yeah. I love that. And then so has it been smooth sailing? Like, do you have to bribe him to practice? Have you ever had to bribe him to practice? What does that look like? What I would say is that firstborns are always the trickiest. And I would say there are unique trickinesses to have mus- musician kids that are, well, ki- kids of musicians that are studying music. Because, you know, our goal also with our kids is that they can become whatever they want. There is, you know, we do this for the intrinsic goodness it gives and that's it. But um, no, firstborns are always the tricky ones because, you know, you're laying the, the path. Um, no, it has definitely not all been easy. Um, you know, it, I think in educational things, instead of using the word bribe, we would say showing the work. <laughs> <laughs> But we do that all the time. Like when they were little, it was like, you know, if you can do, we work on this, this much, then we'll, within each, we'll do a Lego brick or we'll stack up chocolate chips and then you get to eat them. And, you know, we have to celebrate, celebrate, celebrate all the work. So yeah, a hundred percent. But I will say, you know, our second born is much easier because for him, it's like everyone plays cello 
So of course he wants to play cello, but he's the one all along that's always been hilarious where he'll be like, well, uh, there are 10 books in the Suzuki curriculum, but he'll, he'll say like all along, he's been like, well, I know book 104, mom. Do you know book 104? <laughs> so are you, I'm like, the, no. are you the practice parent for him? At this point, Nick and I really do a mix. Okay. Um, and so we sort of share it and we sort of pass it along, which has its pluses or minuses. And sometimes things are missed or forgotten and they have a different teacher as well. Okay. Got it. Oh, so you're, neither of you are their primary teachers. I guess that's another important point. Correct. Yeah. yeah they have another person, which is hilarious because um, Christopher was my student when he was little and then grew up and then switched to Nick and then went off and, you know, has two, uh, two degrees in music as well. And now is teaching and he's awesome. But, um, I will, I will just yours? remember, yeah, he teaches okay. our kids and which is so sweet. And then I remember one time having a, a less working with my youngest and, um, he played a wrong note and he struggles with perfectionism and being told that something was wrong, which is normal. And that's the whole, the whole part of this is to work on these hard bits. That's all it is. And I would, and he said, Nope, this is right. It is an F natural. It's a two. And I was like, well, it's actually, cause he at the time he hadn't ever played a two. Doesn't know, you know, hadn't even been taught that note. I was like, Oh, it's this three. It's an F sharp. It's going to be three. And he goes, you're wrong, mommy. Mr. Christopher told me it was this way. And, um, and I was like, well, <laughs> I'm not wrong. Right. And I taught him anyway. And it's in the music, which I know how to read. Right. <laughs> and he was like, you're, I'm not wrong. Anyway. So we did work it through, but right. it's, you know, it's kind of funny. Oh, I love that. So I got a, several questions from listeners about music oh, that I was sure. hoping you could help me with. Um, put your teacher hat on for a few minutes. So the first one that I have here is how ADHD and music can be combined for school. Oh, in a school setting. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on um, neurodivergent kids and I've done a lot of research on that. Um, and that's probably like, you know, three other podcasts. Right. So you have a lot of neurodivergent kids in your program, right? So just yes. Suzuki is very much friendly to kids who are wired in any different way, shape, ways. or form. Yeah. 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 And it's, and I think that's really important and I think it's really interesting. Um, I think if we're talking about in school settings, it can be tricky because I think in school settings, you know, there are goals that they're trying to reach. There's curriculum that they're trying to follow, whereas the Suzuki curriculum is is designed for each child and has a lot of flexibility with each child. But what I what I would love to see more workshops on are pacing and how to vary up our teaching pacing. And so for instance, I often feel like teachers almost always teach at the pacing style that is super comfortable for them. But if you have a kid that you know um, has ADHD and really needs a lot of stimuli, now of course there are processing speech that that would make the, that more complicated but I'll just say a kid that doesn't have processing issues or isn't um, doesn't work on a slower setting um, but a lot of ADHD kids if you just go faster you can keep them involved mm. just don't stop playing go 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 and it's a lot of it takes a lot of work and training to learn how to figure out how to change your 
internal pacing. But I would love to see more programs do that. I also think the other thing, if we're talking about, you know, how to help ADHD kids in school settings is to stop talking, even though this is a podcast. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, again, you know, grownups, we love to talk and we're so good at processing words. And a lot of times in a school setting, someone will explain, Mm -hmm. you know, really do, 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 do. Stop talking. Play, 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 play. Um, and you know, maybe that was too fast, but I'm, I'm also a bit neurodivergent and I just think it's learning to, I mean, and again, every kid's going to be different, but learning to give them the right amount of stimuli, but then also with music, then you're going to stretch that kid eventually too. So it shouldn't always be super comfortable. The idea is how are we able to handle the uncomfortableness because that's where growth is, right? So there might be times when we go deeper or work harder or go faster or slower and that kind of a thing. But what I would say is if you're talking about in a school setting is to just get them involved as much as possible. I think one of the things too is that sometimes we get so worried that our kids are going to struggle and so we avoid the struggle or we don't want to have to deal with the teacher phone call. Like how do we, how do I incorporate this kid who's struggling? And I have certainly been there and you feel that kind of like um, almost hot shame coming. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I would say is just the opposite, you know, at least one in five kids has some form of neurodivergence. And my guess is it's way more than that. And the more we get these kids involved and playing and the more other, more teachers learn tools of how to handle those kids and keep them happy and engaged, then the better off everyone's going to be. Yeah. Because it's not like we're going to not participate in the world. Yeah. It makes me think about um, a study I read once about ADHD ADHD kids and flashcards, math flashcards, that the more they practice, the worse they actually got at the flashcards. Oh, interesting. Isn't it? Because they were bored, right? Because their yes. brains need the novelty to change it up and learn it. You know, maybe if those flashcards had changed colors or if one was digital and one was analog and um, maybe one was on a dry erase board, you know, maybe if they were taught in different formats, that could have looked differently. But that just same re- repeated exposure to the flashcards, they actually got worse because they were so bored that they couldn't tune into it. Yeah, I totally get that. I mean, the other thing too is incorporating movement in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to do flashcards, can you bounce a ball at the same time and then do the, you know, like it's, yeah. and, you know, I think with a lot of education, we, um, it's really important to teach teachers to think outside the box and to be continually teaching. And sometimes we get these set curriculums and we just want to be like, well, this is the curriculum for this week. And this is the goal. And this, you know, and, um, and that's not really teaching. That's like some made up rules. Yeah. Real teaching is seeing the lights turn on and seeing the, the comprehension and the kids and that excitement. Cause it feels so good to learn. If you're trying to join a school program and you're worried about, um, a kid that thinks differently, I would reach out to the teacher and maybe include a school counselor or some of the administration at the school and just say, we really want to do this. We think it would be great for them. We have some concerns. Does it, does this teacher um, you know, feel comfortable? Do they have tools to work with these kinds of kids? Can I share some things that work with my kid? 
that kind of stuff. And in general, I think teachers, of course, love kids and that's why they become teachers and they want tools and they want kids to be successful. Um, now, sometimes you find teachers that are, um, find your kid tricky and that mm-hmm. has happened in our yeah. family. <laughs> Absolutely. So does it matter what kind of music kids listen to? Well, that's a good question. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, I I would say, let's talk about volume. We are having more and more young people going deaf. And that is because once you have damaged your hearing, it will not come back. It's not recoverable. And I think as a society, we really need to be careful about volume with young children and kids in general. Um, If you hear a ringing or if your kids, if they're really little and they're trying to do things to dampen the sound, turn it way down. Maybe your hearing is a little off. Mm -hmm. So I would start with that. Movies are really often way too loud, damaging your hearing. Bring earplugs for kids in different places. Um, But then I would also say that um, I feel sensitive about certain types of music that have demeaning language to women or other people. Um, Any language that sort of others people, even if it is very popular or the thing that people are listening to, I, um, if it glorifies violence, I know that maybe some people think that I am, uh, sheltering or overprotective, but I believe that being okay with that means that you're okay with that. I mean, you could have discussions and you can talk about, um, this makes me uncomfortable because I don't like these words and this is why I don't like those words. Um, so I'll just throw that out there too. That's a different, uh, different thought. I would also say any music that brings you joy, listen and enjoy that with your kid. Like it doesn't have to be highbrow. All music has value. And even music with lyrics that I think are questionable, maybe they're great for grownups because you could talk, you can think those through, but maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be with a kid. I think it's great to listen to different kinds of music. And I think that in general, in America, there's less listening to classical music than there is in Europe, which is also why there's more of an audience for classical music in Europe. Um, And I think that there is this sort of an American belief that classical music is boring or for old people. And so much of classical music is actually epic. Like people, you know, it's, it's about more than just one topic, but it's about you know, subversive uh, comments on government. And it's about tragedy and grief and epic, you know, it's, they have huge stories behind them. And I think it would be really cool if you know nothing about classical music to try to learn something with your kiddo. You might do research before you go really, uh, before you're like, let's, let's Google this and something pops up because some of it is definitely not for kids. (laughs) Right. But I mean, it's really cool. It's really, and you can still listen to it and there's no words. So you don't necessarily have to explain what this is about. Yeah. But it's, I would say there, that, those are the only rules I have for music. Like I don't just listen to, to classical music. I love fiddle tunes. I love folk music. I, I mean, I'm not, I know my sisters make fun of me because I'm not really a popular music person and I never really have been because I'm so nerdy. But um, I like music with passion. I love that. And deep feelings. Yeah. 
So the next question, is there a link between reading music and reading code? And I, I'll add reading words, just like learning to read. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the studies are mostly mixed. I mean, I, you know, obviously there was that whole Mozart effect that came out that said, you know, if you do music, your kid's going to be a better at everything, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it's the same thing like the breastfeeding studies, you know, there's a lot of other stuff happening in those families that correlate to those kinds of things. I do think music study, especially if you do it at a high level, like if you don't let your kid quit just because it gets hard, which is like, you know being okay, uncomfortable and learning. I think there is tremendous problem solving skills in music. Um, you know, if you're getting into the advanced stuff and you're talking about different fingerings, you know, there are, there's so many skills in music learning that transfer to other kinds of learning. Um, coding, I don't necessarily know. I mean, I do think there's, I mean, there's a lot of math and music stuff. Um, and reading, you know, I think it's a bit mixed. I don't think music ever hurts intellectual endeavors. And I certainly know there are loads of parents that get into it because of the intellectual gifts that it gives. I guess for me, it's more about the um, the social emotional stuff. Like what happens when you play, you get to a part that's really difficult and, and you really haven't struggled all that much. The idea is to get through the struggle. And what do you do when you have a big problem? And how do you make a big problem small enough to manage? And if it's is that not small enough, how do you do it? If you can't solve it this way, can you solve a problem a different way? And to me, those skill sets are transferable to anything, relational things or learning things. So I think there's a lot, you can find a million studies on music and this, and I think it's very similar to other things too. Like we don't really know, I think Mm -hmm. (laughs) it doesn't hurt. Um, But I also, I think if you go into music um, because you want to give your kid that edge, I mean, it's okay. That's an okay. I mean, a lot of, tons of parents do that, but I hope that in the long run, you really see it for these other gifts that, when, let's say you become a really great musician. One of the things that I think is so amazing for it is say you're playing some of that epic music we talked about. Let's say you're playing a piece that is about grief. What you're really doing is you're practicing going in and out of those feelings and being able to complete that feeling cycle, being able to express feelings, you know, especially as a mom of boys, you know, it's not like there is that much play with feelings and letting them go. And in, in the normal world, obviously we have a very feeling family, I think, but, you know, I think culturally it's not like they're like, you know, with girls, they're, they're, they're playing house. They're, they're culturally taught how to practice feelings. And I think doing that in music is so powerful and so healing and so helpful. And so if all my kids get out of music is this ability to, emote, to put, to work through feelings and to deal with what life gives them. That is more than enough for me. I love that. Um, okay. Do little kids enjoy music practice, even if it's not their idea or if it feels like it gets forced? This is interesting because I feel like 
you know, growing up in musical families, it was just assumed that you were going to play. But like in my family, I I didn't ask my kids, do you want to play an instrument? I just said, do you want to play this or do you want to play that? (laughs) So I guess if you do give your kids that choice to say, do you want to do this or do you not want to do this? And they say no. I don't know. How would you approach that? I think it's really important that the lessons feel fun. Okay. Not, maybe not always, because again, sometimes we're going to push, but that in general, there is a connection between the student and the teacher that the kid feels loved, that the kid feels like, I want to go. I'm so excited to go. Um, And then I would say practicing should have, it's, I always think of it as a diet. There should be moments that are joy. There absolutely should be moments of joy. There should be moments where you're laughing, whether it's laughing at a mistake or just goofing off on the instrument, like not even mm-hmm. learning, but just goofing. I think that's important, right? Yeah. Um, and then there should be moments of hard work. There should be moments where you are struggling together and you could be struggling emotionally Like, how do I work with my child? How do I get my child to work? How am I, how do I help them work independently? Um, And, and that is the point of it, at least in the Suzuki world. So if you, if the kid says, I want to quit, or I don't like this, or this doesn't always feel happy or joyful. Well, that's, that is, that is the point. Um, It's not supposed to always be joyful because work is not always joyful. But accomplishing, it is, right? Like everything important in life is going to require work. Let's say a marriage, a relationship. It's kind of, there's going to be moments that are just hard. And this musical journey is this idea that we can do hard things. We We can get over this hump. And if we allow kids to quit whenever something feels hard or difficult, that will be what they learn. That will be how they grow up. Well, I can't do this. This is, this is hard. And really what we're trying to teach resilience, the idea is that we can't, maybe we need to take a little, maybe we take a break from the practice if it's getting too intense, or maybe we can have a hug in this moment. And, you know, I will do that with, um, if we have these moments that get very intense, I, or, you know, we're tired, we're hungry, either one of us is in a bad mood. We'll take a minute, we'll have a hug, and I will say, I just want to remind you, um, whoever kiddo this is, that we are, I'm doing this with you because I love you. And, you know, in my mind, the grown-up language is practice is an expression of love. Um, Every moment of love is not going to be joyful and easy because love is not really easy right? Um, and it's the same thing too. Like if your kid says, oh, well, I have my, I don't know, toothbrushing seems to be an issue in our house. But like, you know, it's not like you would say, we don't like toothbrushing. Oh, we'll never do it. It's okay. You don't ever have to do that. You don't like to tie your shoes. No worries. I'll do it for you right. for the rest of your life. One of the, you know, things that you see a lot in parents is that we love our kids and it's so hard to see them uncomfortable. And it's so hard to see them struggle. So we want to solve it for them or we want to end the struggle. What I would really encourage parents and anything that they do is to look at the struggle. Is it a healthy struggle? Is it a struggle that they can solve? Do we need to step in? Can we just watch and offer tips if they ask? And 
that's how you empower kids. So the question is, you know, do you force it? No, because I've been forced. You know, I know what forcing feels like. But the idea is to think think deeper than that. It's to inspire them to want to do it on their own because it matters and because it feels good to do good. Yeah. We're only practicing five minutes a night right now. And honestly, that feels like a win. (laughs) Yeah. Getting the instruments out and like just getting started like that, you know, baby steps. Oh, totally. But my biggest argument, leave the instruments out. Oh, yeah, don't yeah, don't don't pack them up because if you have to unpack an instrument, especially a cello, oh, right, right. It's Except like it's like half the practice twice a week, so that's I guess. Yeah, you have to pack, yeah, we do the same thing too. We have a, right. not to try to be too enabling, but sometimes I'll do the unpacking and packing right. for them. Yeah. Yeah, just to get it going. Yeah. Lower lower the barrier of entry. Yeah. But if you can leave it out and you don't have animals or younger children that will ruin the instruments, um Sometimes they'll walk by and goof off. Yeah. Well, last night for the first time, my son did, I don't even know what you would call this, but he was playing Twinkle, which he's very familiar with. And he added like his own variation. What do you call that? I don't know. Like a couple like other. I love that. Well, that would be like improvising. Right. Or sometimes if you want to use a kid term, you could call it noodling or goofing off. But I love that. But it sounded great. And he kept doing it repeatedly in a way that was, it almost seemed intentional. Like he was kind of like making up his own variation, which he's never done anything like that before. And it sounded really good. It didn't sound like he was just like, like messing around. Like he actually was intentionally thinking about doing something different that was his and his alone. And I thought that was really cool. I love cool that. Just to listen to I it. encourage goofing off on the instrument. Some teachers don't because they're like, no, you know, you know, again, curriculum, curriculum. Yeah. But I think there is a lot to be learned from exploring and even just like, you know, trying to find weird ways to make sounds on the instrument. Now, sometimes they'll come up with horrible sounds and you're like, ah. but I mean, there's, they're still learning things like, well, if I do this, this is what happens. Yeah. And if I do, and I, I also think, you know, um, if we approach music learning as a exploration, right? Like what can we discover? That's why I try not to put limits. Like, you know, we don't have a certain amount of time we practice. We do practice every day, but we don't have like a, we'll do this many minutes. So there are days when everyone has more to give. And there are days when um, one or the both of us have very little to give. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So then maybe that's a one song day. And then the days that you have more, like on a weekend and everyone's had good sleep. I mean, you know, if you just let it roll, sometimes you'll get a shocking amount of stuff out, out of the kid. And even if it's just mostly goofing off, like if they're just goofing off, they're still playing. They're building muscles. They're building, you know, the ability to find stuff on the instrument. Um, and I will also do sometimes what I call family jams, which my kids enjoy. And we just kind of make stuff up. Like we're just um, kind of sitting in a circle and doing whatever. Yeah, I love that. And yeah, and I'll let my, I'll let my youngest, you know, when I'm playing something with the oldest, the youngest will um, kind of try to play even like the, the more advanced stuff that he has no ability. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, you know, I, I think that's okay. We'll figure it out later. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so yeah. much, Heather. I've appreciated chatting with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was so great. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with Heather. 
If you want to get in touch with her and learn more about her music school or the Suzuki method, you can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 339. You'll find all the links there. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm glad you're here.